positive song because uh, there have been times I've been listening for my name and I knew that was going to be trouble. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, the, but that's the story as Christians, right, isn't it? That, uh, that uh, we take what can be a negative situation and uh, turn it into something, something good. Uh, so uh, I, I, I know John and you know we've made the announcement, sent out the email, this thing with masks and changes and COVID, and it is just hard to keep up with all that information, isn't it? So uh, um, it, it's it's not anyone's fault; it's something new. I said to a couple of people this week, I said I think in five years we'll have a really good idea about how to handle this, you know. Um, but as it goes, we think we know something, and then we learn. The, the virus acts or reacts in a different way, and we have to change our behavior again. So, it's hard though not to get frustrated. It's hard to be patient. It's hard to uh, um, tolerate changes and and all of that. And I appreciate appreciate that. And uh, I think it it's um, challenges our our Christianity, doesn't it? You know, so what's it mean? You know, there's so many different ideas. You know, patience, long suffering. Loving neighbors, loving one another, you know, all these sort of different concepts. And it's like, how do we do that? How do we do it in this context? And uh, uh, I know we don't all come to the same conclusions, but it, it's, it's part of that. It's, it's faith in action. And, uh, and, and I think it's helpful for us to see it that way rather than just uh, rule following for the sake of rule following. We are... Uh, going through the book of Acts, and we are up to Acts chapter 15. And um, I, I would encourage you, I, we, don't, you know, we don't really have the capacity to read the entirety of each chapter during the worship service. They're fairly, fairly lengthy chapters. Uh, so uh, it, since we're doing, I'm, I'm trying to do a chapter a week. I mean, Chapter 15 really sort of challenges that. There's about three sermons in there at least. Um, but uh, So we're trying to do one, one chapter each week. Uh, so you can read along in advance. That, that's really the best way uh, for us to navigate this, I think, through the rest of the, the, rest of the book, uh, is read the chapter in advance, and, uh, and then you will have a head start on understanding what's, what's going on. But this is a significant moment here in Acts 15, significant moment in the history of the church. Often it's referred to as the Jerusalem Council. I don't know if you've ever heard that, that term given to this chapter. Uh, I want to suggest, though, that the problem with that is that it gives the impression that it's an event, that, that invitations were sent out all over the, to the church, all over the Roman Empire, that the leading lights came together, that there was a, you know, an agenda, topics to be discussed, and that they you know, were coming up with some um, laws or, or decrees for all Gentiles everywhere to, to abide by. Um, but, but I think that's misleading. Because what we see here really is a continuation of what we talked about over the last couple of weeks. Chapter 13 and 14 describe this missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas go on. They go first to the island of Cyprus, they travel, that's you know, out in the Mediterranean, they travel from there north up into central Turkey, the region of, of Galatia. And uh, as they go, they, as becomes their custom, they go firstly to the synagogue, to the Jews, and then they share the gospel with the Gentiles. And, and oftentimes there's more Gentiles, or as many or more Gentiles who respond to the gospel than there are Jews. 
In some places, we're not even told that there were Jews. Um, I think that was the case in, in um, last week. That We're just told that they're, they're there and they're greeted as gods. It seems that their audience is entirely Gentile at that point. And so they, they come back and they're celebrating what God has done, what they've seen the Holy Spirit done, how receptive these Gentiles, these ungodly people. Because remember, the Jews consider themselves godly all the time. Gentiles are ungodly people. They're pagans. They're, they're, you know, they're lost. They're unclean. And, and so you can imagine these Jews going out on this missionary journey and they're saying, well, God wants to include Gentiles, but I don't really see them being very responsive to this message, right? Because they're ungodly people. They're pagans. They've got their own gods. Why would they want to switch to us? And, and they go out and yet they, they, in every town they visit and stay at, they, they plant a church, a new church that includes Gentiles. And so they're, they're coming home and they're just so excited. I mean, Paul was almost killed in one of the cities. That wasn't quite so exciting. But, you know, missionary reports often sort of hit the highlights. And uh, you say, what were the good things that happened? And, and so they, they are telling how God is working. Um, look at in verse uh, 27 of chapter 14. On arriving in Antioch, this is the church that sent them, they gathered the church together, reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That was their headline from their missionary journey. It wasn't, hey, we planted X number of churches. It was God has, we have seen God open a door to the Gentiles. And they stayed there in Antioch a long time with the disciples. And so we have there in Antioch this beautiful, multi-ethnic, mission-minded church that is celebrating the spread of the gospel to new people groups. But then, some people come from Judea. Judea is the Roman province where Jerusalem is located. And they come up to Antioch. And we don't know if they came in direct response to rumors they had heard of things going on in Antioch. Or if they just happened to be passing through or relocated there with work or what it was. But when they come, they look around, they go, wow, this church is growing, but those people don't look Jewish. What are they doing here? Oh, we've seen the Gentiles just responding to the message. They are eager to be part of God's kingdom. And these Jewish Christians go, well, really? How do they feel about the circumcision? Because they know that's a barrier, right? And the church in Antioch says, oh no, they're Gentiles. They don't need to be circumcised. Well, these Jews from Jerusalem almost fall over. Say what? <laughs> Say what? They're God's people without the circumcision? That's impossible. That's impossible. Because God has said, has said for thousands of years, if you want to be part of my people... If you're going to be faithful to me, if you're a male, you need to be circumcised. What's going on, Antioch? And then they learned that not only is it in Antioch, but when Paul and Barnabas went to Galatia and they planted churches in Galatia and the people became Christians there, they didn't get circumcised either. Now, oh, we got a problem. We got a problem. Because now you're bringing people, it's spreading, you're bringing people into other places. 
There's also a political element because I told you last week that Jews had an exemption, right? From uh, They were able to not participate in the Roman emperor worship because they were monotheists, because they were Jews. Now you've got these Gentiles who are coming and sort of becoming part of this Jewish Christian community and they're claiming the same exemption. They're sort of claiming that they're monotheists, that they're, they're connected to the Jews, but, you know, they haven't signed on the dotted line. They're not all in. So it's like trying to get, you know, a um, child credit on your tax return without having a child. My friend has a child, right? And the friend comes and hangs over with me a lot, and so I, I feed the child, and so I'm going to claim him on my tax credit. And that's kind of what the Jews saw these Gentile Christians as doing on a political level. So they've got problems with what's going on. And it becomes really an enormous conflict in the church. What has been this terrifically healthy church is caught up in conflict. Now, we don't know the exact timing of the events, but there is another event that we're told about over in uh, the book of Galatians, chapter 2. I'm just going to read this. It uh, happens between... Uh, some of you will recognize this, between Paul and Peter, but it happens in Antioch. And there's a good chance it happens in this time period that we're looking at. Um, because Paul is, spends a long time there. Maybe Peter traveled through there at some point in time. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, Cephas is the Aramaic name of Peter, he says, you are a Jew, Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow the Jewish customs? So I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of what it was that Paul said to Peter, but here's the issue. Is that Peter has come to spend some time in Antioch while Paul and Barnabas are there. And he's getting along fine, okay, in this multi-ethnic, multilingual church. Uh, mission-minded, and, and says, this is great. We can see the Spirit of God at work. Well, then these people come from Jerusalem, and they start getting really critical of what's going on. Particularly, they're upset. In fact, they're called the circumcision group. And even the Apostle Peter gives in to this peer pressure. And he starts to withdraw from the Gentiles. And then other Jews start to follow, right? Because now this circumcision group has Peter with them. Other, other Jewish Christians start to follow and withdraw. Even Barnabas starts to follow and withdraw. And Paul has to confront them. Now, like I say, it's difficult to understand all of this sequence. I think perhaps this happened early on. And I think Paul confronted Peter and Barnabas 
And, uh, and, and they responded. I think there's a great, there's, a, there's sort of like a sermon there, right? That, that they, res- he, they responded to the criticism. They didn't get defensive. They didn't argue against it. They said, you're right. You're right. Gentiles are included in the kingdom and, and we need to be supportive of this. And, 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 but that didn't mean it was the end of the matter. I think Peter then traveled on and we're going to encounter him again in Jerusalem. The, the issue keeps bubbling away there in Antioch. And we see, but because they've had that confrontation, Paul and Barnabas are now on the same page. Peter and Paul are on the same page. Because we said in verse 1, certain people came from Judea to Antioch, were teaching believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught to Moses, you cannot be saved. This is a salvation issue for them. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Okay, so now Paul and Barnabas are on the same page, but they're in dispute with this circumcision group. Well, Paul and Barnabas, we see in verse 3, are appointed to go with some other believers up to Jerusalem. Because that's sort of the source of the problem. And the church in Antioch says, well, we can make our own rules, but it's only going to lead to increased conflict over time. Um... Let's go and let's have a face-to-face conversation about this. And so they send Paul, Barnabas, and some others down to Jerusalem. Now, I like what happens next. Uh, the church sends them on the way. As they travel through Phoenicia and through Samaria. So if you can picture, I, I don't have any slides today, but if you can picture Antioch is up in Syria. and Below that is Lebanon. Below that is Israel. And so they travel through Phoenicia or Lebanon and then uh, down uh, through Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, and ultimately to Jerusalem. And as they come along, they're telling these churches, hey, we went on a mission trip. We went to Cyprus. We went to Galatia and Gentiles became Christians and God is opening a great door. And these churches are celebrating what's happening. Uh, We're told this news made all the believers very glad. And when they come to Jerusalem, initially they're welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders to whom they told everything that God had done. So it's this extension of the mission trip. All of this is coming out of the trip that they took to Cyprus and Galatia. And that's what they tell people about. But then, somebody at the back of the room stands up. And they said, Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Well, the room goes quiet all of a sudden. All the joy has been sucked out of it. And what I find really interesting about this is that as they go to these regional churches and they tell them what God's doing, people celebrate. But as they come to Jerusalem, as they come to the place that you know, it has the most, more apostles per church member than any other congregation in the empire. It's the church that is closest to the temple and to the Israelite heritage that, that you know, is, is connected to the people of God most directly for thousands of years to that heritage. Um, it, it's got the greatest teachers there who've been schooled in the Jewish schools of teaching. And it's also the church that is the most resistant to the new movements of the Holy Spirit 
in the kingdom of God. I think that's very interesting. Because what we see are these ripples of discomfort caused by changes in the definition of God's people. The church is being forced to adapt, to react to the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Paul and Barnabas have been used by God to turn the page on a new chapter in the story of his kingdom. And the Gentiles celebrate it. The churches outside of Jerusalem celebrate it. But the Jerusalem church, or some of the members in the Jerusalem church, have some problems with it. And it must have been a significant group because it wasn't just like the rest of the church just said, oh, that's Bill. Sit down, Bill. We've heard that before. It's a significant group of people in the church. I just find it fascinating that that's where the resistance to the mission of God rears its head. So, jumping through the story, because we can't do it verse by verse, James, the brother of Jesus, is going to stand up. And in verse 20... He uh, proposes four expectations on the Gentile Christians. He tells them, firstly, to abstain from food polluted by idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, to abstain from meat of uh, strangled animals, and to abstain from eating blood. Significantly, circumcision isn't one of the obligations placed upon the Gentile Christians. But let's be clear. The Gentile, there's no indication that the Gentile Christians have been doing anything wrong to this point. This list is not for their benefit. This list is for the benefit of those in Jerusalem who are struggling with welcoming the Gentiles into the church. You see, the goal is to get the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians to sit at a table together to be able to eat together, to be able to fellowship and work together. And for that to happen, food was going to be an issue. And so he says, Gentiles, you need to be sensitive to the customs of the Jewish people. You see, Jewish Christians were still Jewish. They still went and they worshipped at the temple. They still didn't eat pork. They still you know, kept the dietary laws, they still observed the Sabbath, because they're still Jews. But the Gentiles weren't Jews. And they didn't need to become Jews. And so there's this cultural difference between the two groups. But he says to the Gentiles, you need to be aware that the Jews have these limitations. So don't flaunt your freedom. He says you need to not eat food that has blood in it. You need to not eat food that's been offered to idols. You need to abstain from immorality. I think that was sort of like a stereotype. Remember I said at the start that Gentiles are just these ungodly pagan people? I don't know that Gentile Christians were out there engaging in immorality thinking, oh, we can get away with it because we're Gentiles. But I think there was a stereotype there. The Jews said, oh, they're just bad. They're they're just out there, immoral people. So they made a rule for the sake of the Christians in Jerusalem. 
They said, okay, Gentiles, make sure you're not engaging in immorality. If Gentile believers will do these things to accommodate the standards of Jewish Christians, they can all get along. So the Gentiles belong in the church as Gentiles. That's the first thing. That's not even up for debate. Peter speaks about it. James speaks about it. And that's clear. Gentiles do not need to become Jews to become Christians. And, and so with that out of the way, that's the circumcision issue. Okay? And so then there's just the lifestyle issue. And so they make these, create these expectations. So in the time that we have left, I want to focus though on verse 19, not get into the nitty-gritty of these expectations. These, incidentally, I told, said this wasn't a council because we don't see an edict that applies to all Gentile Christians for all time. In fact, Paul is later on in the letter to the Corinthians, he's going to say, you can eat food offered to idols, but if it becomes a stumbling block for someone else, stop it. So that's actually, if you line it up with what the apostles and the elders sort of write down here in um, Acts 15. You go, Paul, why are you saying that? You can't say that. But I I believe it was an occasional thing. They were saying at this point in time, as Gentiles are coming into the church, we need to do our best to facilitate relationship between people. And flaunting freedoms isn't going to be the way to do it. Okay, Um, So... In verse 19, which is where I want to, to now hang out, the Apostle James has this to say. He says, It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Circumcision made it difficult, right? Let's just sort of put that out there, right? That, that, that made it difficult. But there could have been all, because it wasn't just, if you go back, it wasn't just circumcision. Uh, in verse uh, 5, it says, and required to keep the law of Moses. That would mean all the festivals, Jewish festivals, all the feasts, all the um, sacrifices. But it, the, the Gentiles, they didn't have a heritage of God delivering them through the Exodus, and so they, it was important for them to keep Passover. That was Israel's history. That was Jewish history. And so culturally, they could continue to celebrate God's faithfulness to them as a nation, as a people. They could go to the temple, make their sacrifices, have their meals, you know, do all the rituals that went into the Passover because that was God's history with them. And the Gentiles, in a sense, are missing out on that because they don't have that heritage. But it's also not bound on them that they now have to keep the Passover in order to be a Christian. So we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What were they doing that makes it difficult? As I said, there's this theological question about do you need to become a a Jew to become a Christian? The answer is no. And there's this social problem. As we saw in Galatians, the outcome of this dispute is a segregated church. And that, that is what the Jerusalem, so-called Jerusalem Council, and really it was just whoever apostles and elders were there when Paul and Barnabas arrived. But this meeting, this discussion, 
What it was trying to resolve was the segregation of the church into a Jew and a Gentile church, into a circumcised and an uncircumcised church. Now, for many people, both then and now, segregation seems like a very effective solution to differences. 80% of churches in this country are still racially segregated. Maybe not intentionally, maybe not by design, maybe not by laws and who can and who cannot come, but it is a reality that that is what exists. It's easier, we might say, to love people who are like ourselves. Okay? It's easier to love people like ourselves. Do you ever get tired of explaining something to somebody who's different than you? Do we cook shrimp on a barbie? Yeah? Like, how many times do you have to answer that question? What is a shrimp? In fact, we call them prawns, okay? So it just doesn't work. You know, the whole thing's messed up. But, like, it's easier to have a conversation with somebody who shares your heritage, who shares your life experience, because you're not doing this continual explanation. You just both know what you're talking about. It's easier or simpler when the only food served at a meal, whether it be a fellowship meal or a more intimate meal, is food that you're familiar with. When you don't have to dig through the stew wondering what's in it, right? When, when you know what's being served because the person who cooked it is, comes from a background much like yours. That's simpler. Worship is less challenging when it's just like it's always been. Um, When you don't have to integrate another language into a worship service, it's simple, isn't it? It's less distracting. If you're not, you know, if we had to translate this sermon into Spanish for the benefit of somebody that was here, that would be distracting. Maybe some people would get sick of it and it'd make the service take longer and we're not willing to do that because it's, it's an imposition. And communication is more effective when everyone speaks the same language. So let's segregate. Church is simpler, more efficient, more effective when people understand each other, don't have to explain things, can do things the same, you know, in a way that's familiar to them. We'll put the Jews over here and the Gentiles over there. And everyone will be happy because everything's familiar. No one has to learn. No one has to adjust. And uh, they're with people that are like them, with values like them. And so segregation seems like a great uh, solution. But the apostles in this passage declare that the solution is unacceptable. In fact, more than that, they say that the solution is not a solution Rather, it's a problem. And so they find a way for these two groups to coexist within the church, within the kingdom of God. James is, is very clear. In fact, we can go back to Peter. Peter has this, this statement in verse 7. Eventually, after a lot of discussion, I wonder how Peter sort of bit his tongue for all this time, but he, eventually he gets up and he says, Then brothers... You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips 
the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Here's what we have in common. It's not our, we don't have the right or the authority to now segregate because God has brought them in and given them the same Holy Spirit as we have. And more than that, he did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, why do you put God to the test? By putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we or our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through grace our Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus, that they that we are saved just as they are. Okay? Same Holy Spirit, same grace, same church. We belong together. And so I think we need to ask ourselves two things. Are there people today that God wants to tell us belong in the church that we're oblivious to. You see, in verse 19, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the blank. What is that blank for us? That we should not make it difficult for this group of people who are turning to God. You see, this group of people is going to change the church. This group of people is going to challenge our traditions and things that we're familiar with. Let me give, I think, a a common example. Maybe some of you have been in situations like this. I have books on my my shelf that uh, uh, the whole topic is about worship wars. Worship wars, like those two words can really belong together. Um, Essentially what they talk about is that their conflict arises either within a congregation or between congregations on the appropriate style of music in the congregation, in the worship time. And so you end up with a war, perhaps you know, in the city or in the congregation, over the style of worship. And here's what often happens, is that usually new in music is introduced into the church. And what we find is very interesting because it's the long-time members who don't like it and they're able to find a biblical reason that we shouldn't be doing it. So just to step back from the details of whatever this particular style of music is, what we see is that the people that should be the mature Christians, concerned about the spread of the gospel, the growth of the immature Christians, connecting with people, What we see is that the mature Christians, the older members, are unwilling to give up their familiar songs and music styles. They're unwilling to do that for the sake of younger people and newer Christians that find that particular style of music more engaging and more representative of how they express themselves. And so you end up with a conflict in the church often between younger and older people as to what style of music should the church sing. So think about it, if this is 
mature Christians versus immature Christians. I, I just find it interesting. It's the mature Christians that say we need to have it our way, our preference. You immature ones need to adapt to us. You need to learn to do it our way because the songs from the 1920s really speak to us. And we don't understand why they don't speak to you in the 2020s. And your 2020 songs, they're all just twinkly and repetitive and they don't do anything for us. But the mature Christians are sort of coming and saying, we need to have our worship the way that we want it for us to be able to maintain our faith in a meaningful way. You know what that sounds like? Immature. Immature. And yet it's hard, isn't it, to give something up? And so what I think we find is that there are churches, and this isn't something new, this has been going on for a long time. It happens, it rears its head every so often. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the next generation of people who are turning to God. And that we, the Jews, the establishment that have been here in a long time, that know God the best, that are closest to him, that we should not be the ones placing barriers in the way of young people that are eager and excited to learn more and to grow in their relationship and their worship of God. I just think that's a, a case study, an example of what this might look like. I'm not saying that's an issue here at Lawson Road, but what it might look like in our context. I'll give you one more. I know of a church in Nashville that meets in a coffee shop on Sunday night. The coffee shop closes at 5 p.m. and at 5.30, worship begins. It's not traditional, obviously. Um, there's no baptistry in the coffee shop. Um, it's casual. People are sitting around tables, drinking coffee, but they're singing, they're talking, they're hearing about God. It's probably a little noisier, but it's connecting with people that aren't going to walk into a church building. And, and so, again, it's, it's like, are we going to, oh, we, what if the church across the road, there is a big church across the road, Church of Christ. And so what if they come over and they start criticizing and say, this isn't real church? Right? This isn't real church. Where's your communion table? Where's your hymn books? I don't know what else. Where's your PowerPoint slide? You know, like. Um, but it's connecting with a segment of the community. And so a question then arises, are we willing, for Lawson Road, what would we think of sponsoring a church in a coffee shop as a way of connecting with people that would be uncomfortable in this setting? Because this is how we've done church. This is how we've known church. Are we willing to accept those other formats that are connecting with people who are turning to God? Or are we going to say, no, it's, I, don't, I don't connect with that. I don't recognize that. And so, what would James say to us? We should not make it difficult for the casual people who like coffee shops who are turning to God. And so how do we welcome groups that are different to us into the kingdom of God? And, and then the second, second point is 
are we, are we committed on a more individual level to not making it difficult? I think this would be a, a good growth group question. What barriers might we put up to people that are coming to Christ? Let me suggest a, a few possibilities. One of the barriers might be like this. If you want to be like Jesus, you first need to be like me because I'm pretty close to being like Jesus. Because I've been in the church a long time. I know what it's like to be a Christian. Okay? I've learned a lot of lessons. I've lived a lot of life. And so if you want to be a Christian, just hang with me. Start with changing that radio channel. Okay? I didn't like that radio channel. I, I couldn't listen to that radio channel. That would just distract me. That would get me going to... You, you shouldn't be listening to that. And we tend to tell people that in order for them to become Christians, maybe they need to be more like us. What about... You need to dress a particular way to come to church now that you're baptized. Like it was okay for you to wear holy jeans and, and whatever before you were baptized, but now you're baptized, you really need to step it up. Okay. These are extreme examples. I'm not saying that it, that it doesn't matter, but are these perhaps individual barriers, messages that we might give to people? Um, perhaps, guys, if you're not willing to speak publicly in a, in a worship service or to read scripture or to share your thoughts, then you're not growing as a Christian. I mean, never mind that being up the front of a church, being up the front of a group, speaking in public is like always, any list of people's fears is always like top three is public speaking. And yet somehow do we communicate to people that if you're a guy and you've been in the church you know, for 18 months and you haven't stood up the front of everyone and said a prayer, maybe you're not growing. And, and so we measure a person's growth, we measure their service to Jesus not by how they're living their lives, but whether they've made a public appearance at the front of a church service. Is that a barrier that we erect for people? Um, maybe you know that becoming a Jesus follower means you're going to have to change who you vote for, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that happens. I think that might happen. Because you can't possibly be a Christian and vote for... <clears throat> you see... I think we can still put barriers in the way of people that are turning to God. And so all the time we see this whole debate is being caused by the Pharisees who've become Christians, but they've brought their... Uh, yeah, this is... I'm not, I'm not going to read those notes. That sentence was a long one. Um, so this debate that's going on in Jerusalem, the whole time they're like putting up these barriers to these Gentiles that they're worried are going to bring all their customs, all their habits, all their baggage into the church. And they're going to ruin the church and the people of God and we're going to be unfaithful and we're going to be sent into Assyrian, Babylonian exile again. And we don't want to do that. Little do they realize that they're Pharisees. They were Pharisaical Jews. And praise God, they became followers of Jesus. You know what they are now? They're Pharisaical Christians. And that's okay because the Pharisees were very devoted and very devout, but they still brought some habits and some viewpoints and some attitudes that weren't healthy with them. Some of them did. Paul himself was a Pharisee, right? So he understands this. And it's not like he was a bad guy. He was still a Pharisee. That was just his worldview, his way of, of seeing things. But, but they're criticizing the Gentiles bringing their baggage. All the time they're oblivious that they have their own baggage with them. Because we all tend to go through this process where my baggage is okay. My baggage is okay. The stuff, my history, the churches I've been part of, the stuff I've been taught, the experiences I've learned, my relationship with God, everything that I bring to the table, that's good. But you, well, I know where you were last summer. 
right? I, I know what you would do. I know your past. And, and you need to change, brother. Sister, you've got, Holy Spirit's got to be working in your life. And I think, I think they miss what's happening right there that they're engaging in. Is how hypocritical they are at the same time as they're trying to actually be particularly holy. So as we close, I want to just think about how this principle, because I think this attitude can bleed over into other parts of our lives. That, that we can actually have this attitude of setting standards, setting expectations that are really our preferences, our, um, our preferences rather than God's standards. Because I'm not trying to do away with expectations. The Gentiles had to live Christian lives. All the letters that Paul writes are mostly written to church, are all written to churches that included Gentiles. And, and so he's telling them, you need to live in this particular way. It's not like anything goes. But they don't have their own set of rules. And the Jews were trying to give them their own set of additional rules. And so I think that in other areas of our lives, we can turn our preferences into standards, into expectations. If, if we can, and, and so think about it in the workplace. Is there someone that's, that you work with who's bright, who has great ability, who's, who's really good at this task, but, but maybe you have, if you're overseeing them or working with them, you say, well, until they get really good at this task, we're not going to recognize them or give them opportunities over there. Because you just think that a well-rounded person should be good at both. But, but they're missing out on reaching their potential, maximizing their potential at what they're good at because you've decided that they need to be good at something else. You know, that a way that we can put our preferences and, and hold back other people. What about in our families? Parents, how often do we turn our preferences into standards? How often do we turn our preferences into rules that everyone in the household is expected to follow? Um, I, I think, are there people in your life, perhaps in relationship, that maybe we say, uh, are we keeping at a distance? Are we missing out on their friendship and support over something that's not really that important? Okay. But they always talk about something whenever we get together, and so we just stay away from them. And that's the end of it. That, that barrier is there. And so we put up barriers to these relationships because they've done something that we disapprove of, something that irritates us, rather than seeing them as a person who can enrich my life and who I can enrich theirs. So out of the debate in Jerusalem, the apostles send a letter to the church in Antioch. And verse 31 tells us the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And that's what the apostles were shooting for. Right? The people come together in worship. They come together at church. They read the letter. And they're glad for its encouragement. And that's what God wants us to shoot for. Inclusion and encouragement. With worship as the catalyst for that. Not to compromise God's standards. And if you've heard that, you've misheard me. Not to compromise God's standards, but not to allow our preferences to become barriers between someone else and God.